The views and opinions expressed on the Untold History Revealed podcast are solely those of the individual stating them and are not necessarily those of the Untold History Revealed owners. Sit back and grab a cup of coffee or tea as we discuss some moments in history that may have been untold or forgotten. Another episode of Untold History Revealed starts now. Hi, gang, and welcome to another episode of Untold History Revealed. I am your host, Sean Donnelly. And I'm your co-host, Mary Ann Donnelly. Uh, on this episode, we're going to be talking about five different events that have changed the world to what we know now. Yeah. It's a pretty interesting topic. I agree. We actually found more, but... You know. We 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 narrowed it down to five that we'd like to do today. Yeah, we're, we try to keep this podcast to an hour, mm-hmm. so you know, future episodes we could cover others. But there you uh, go. all right, so in case you don't know who we are, what we're doing, and what's going on here, uh, basically we are the owners of Dark Shadow Ghost Tours and PanicD.com. Uh, we do a lot of uh, research in the way of uh, paranormal and historical things like that, and um, we have a large collection of. Um, a lot of research that Marianne and I have come across over the years that uh, we thought we'd put together a historical-based podcast of different things that people may not have heard of before. It's not quite paranormal-related. Um, some of the stuff is. Sometimes they overlap. But... Um, but So that's what created the our, our little project, our little hobby, so to speak, um, with this weekly podcast called Untold history revealed Mm -hmm. Uh, we also have a blog site out there that's untoldhistoryrevealed.blogspot.com you could connect to that and see the different posts uh, related to our podcast and previous podcasts and other things Uh, we also have a form on there if you want to contact us you can go on there and fill it out and Send us your comments, questions, concerns. Tell us to get off the air, whatever you want to do. (laughs) Uh, So that's basically who we are and what we're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. But like I said, tonight we are talking about uh, five different things that have changed the world. So let's go ahead and dive into it, shall we? The first one we're going to talk about is... The Crimean War. The Crimean War. Um, now, I do have to admit, I am not a big follower of world history. Mm-hmm. I'm more into history of the United States, uh, things of that nature. But this this war has affected the United States. Um, for those of you who have not heard about this, um, it's basically a war that took place in 1854... And it was between uh, the Ottoman Empire, which is Turkey, mm-hmm. uh, French, British, and Russia. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, basically, what this was over was control of the Holy Land. Uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, areas of like, like that, where... Russia was starting to kind of, well, not starting, they were. Uh, they were starting to expand and take over different areas, and they wanted to move into Turkey, where the French Empire and the British Empire were saying, hey, wait a minute, if they keep doing this, they're going to, you know, basically get to India, where we're at, and, uh, you know, cause some problems, and and Turkey was caught in the middle, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, now... Turkey, um, they basically went and they needed funding. So they took out all these loans and got overextended, basically. And uh, this was during the, the Crimean War. And when World War One came around, um, the Ottoman Empire sided with Germany. Germany. Okay, because they thought, all right, well, if Germany wins, 
uh, we won't have to pay back all this debt because yeah, we'll be on the top of the world dead. with Germany, mm-hmm. right? Well, of course, we know what happened with World War One. Uh, Germany did not win. So the French and English government, for payback, went and said, all right, guess what? We're going to break up the Ottoman Empire and break it up into different little countries and different borders and things like that, which basically led to the problems that we have in the Middle East now. Okay, so that was kind of like the start of it. Um, Now... Most people know about problems that we have in the Middle East. It's been going on for, well, all my lifetime, basically. Uh, now we're dealing with, what, ISIS and, yeah, you know, things like that. But this was this was the uh, start of it. So. Yeah, and people have been fighting over that territory now for quite some time. and Long time. Yeah. Yeah. So. But it had some other things that were kind of interesting as well, uh, in, in addition to just really starting some problems, really, for the whole world uh, for about a century now. Uh, you know, there were some uh, new things that kind of came into play with right. this war. This was the, the first war, document war, so to speak, that used uh, modern technology such as uh, explosive naval shells, the railways, telegraphs, things like that. Um, and reporting like things with photographs. Right. It was documented extensively um, with reports and, and, and no. photographs and stuff like that. Handwritten notes. And, and have you ever heard of Florence Nightingale? I have. She's... She's the nurse. That's right. She's the nurse. The nurse. Now, she heard about the war, and she heard about the conditions, the poor medical conditions and things like that over there. So she went as a civilian Mm -hmm. over to this war and was writing back to the United States what she was witnessing. Right. And those letters were actually published in newspapers. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was really there kind of... being in charge of, you know, getting, you know, um, treatment to the soldiers and things like that. But she got involved in, in this, which kind of let everybody know what it was really like and what was really going on. So she became very, very well known. Uh, and then when she left, she, you know, op- opened up a, a hospital, uh, nursing school. And uh, we we talk about her to this day. That's right. Now I've heard of Florence Nightingale before. I've heard about you know some of these other things. You know, to be honest, like I said in the beginning, I've really never heard of this particular war because it you know wasn't in the United States. Right. But and I and I'd heard of Florence Nightingale forever. I mean, everybody knows Florence Nightingale, but do they really know her? Like, did you yeah. know she was Why? from Why Britain? Did, did you yeah, know how she, did she become yeah. so popular? And it was because of writing these letters back to home, and they published them in newspapers, mm-hmm. which yeah. was, you know. And the then when she went back and started nursing, you know, then she becomes even bigger in the nursing industry. And today, we still use her in the beginnings of every nursing person that's out there today. They all use her... Um, her oath that she's going to take care of everyone and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know the oath myself because I'm not, you know, a nurse. But I know that my sister, who became a nurse, I know that she had to take the, the oath. And, um, you know, we still celebrate Nursing Day on her birthday. You know, so she's she's still pretty influential. So out of this yeah. tragedy, we've had, we had several things that happened. I mean, we had... That war that obviously took lives and things like that, and then it shaped the countries of the world and how we see each other, and it also influenced nursing. Now, this basically, like I said, it stemmed back to Russia wanted control of the of the Holy Lands uh, for Eastern and not necessarily and not necessarily because they were holy lands. They they wanted more space, right? No, it, it, this stems back to, to the Holy Lands, which has been, you know, there's been wars forever right. over that, okay? 
But they wanted to expand to control that. Russia did. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, Britain and France said, well, you know, if they're going to do that, they're just going to keep on going, you know, and eventually hit India, which was a big money maker for those, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so this is a pretty, uh, pretty important war that took place that basically affects our life today. Yeah. Still. Absolutely. Know, so. And a, and a lot of times people say, you know, oh, well, the war, it's not happening here at home. It doesn't affect me. But it, it does. Oh, it's, it's I mean, war most of the time, the I mean, today people are a little bit more willing to understand that it does affect them. But for a long time, they're like, oh, well, it happened over there. It's not going to affect me unless they knew someone who was there, unless they had a family member that was in the war or whatever. But. You know, you can see how war does affect the entire global planet. Right. So. Okay. So, did you want to talk about, let's talk about yours next. Oh, okay. Which one do you want to talk we, we about? We don't have to do these in order that we have them here. So. Okay. Go ahead and talk about that one. The Titanic? Yeah. Oh, now I know everybody loves the Titanic. Everybody knows about the Titanic. It's it's pretty much one of the most famous things that, you know, happened in history that everybody knows. And everybody knows it, basically, because... Should I say what I told you to say? Well, I don't know that you want to say it that way. But everybody knows it because of the media and because of movies and documentaries movies, and yes. going out to uh, museums where they do all the, you know, Titanic experiences and things like that. I'm tired of hearing about Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, I'll, I'll shut up. I'll, yeah, Sean, Sean, Sean says that he, he doesn't like... I don't think you like the Titanic anymore just because literally you hear. Well, no, every time what I don't it. like, and this is really one of the reasons why I I brought this up to you about doing Untold History Revealed. I mean, this was before we had the name of mm-hmm. it. Was that, you know, a lot of times, you know, kids, especially kids, they see these movies and they think that's, hist- that's history. That's how it happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and like sometimes I'll be out and I'll bring up the Titanic talking to people and the first thing they say is, you know, oh yeah, that's that guy that was on the ship and he drowned and the old lady, she survived and eventually throwed that drool out. No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with the Titanic. That's not, I mean, that Jack, what was his name? Jack, whatever. He, that guy didn't even exist. Anyways. Okay. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm on cold medicine. Go ahead. Go back to what you were talking about. My rant well, basically, is over. I had, the only thing that I had gotten to was that literally... I think I said that, and I'll say it now that I brought it up and I'm ending my rant. When I hear that kind of stuff, I just want to throat punch people. <laughs> you know, read a book. Okay, go ahead. Uh, <sighs> so, uh, most people know about this, but they don't know what the Titanic actually gave us. They think of all the things that happened and the people that died and... That's right. Now, I know what you're going to talk about, so let me preset this up so people can understand, okay? Because we deal with a lot in paranormal investigations and things like that, okay? Okay. This was during the Industrial Age or to the end of the Industrial Age, okay? So these people who had the money were not very nice people. Okay. Okay? Mm. That's why they had money, okay? So in the movie, they pushed and pushed and pushed the have that ship to the extent of they pushed it too far okay out of tragedy comes better things which is leading up to what you're going to talk about these these regulations and things that came out so all right i'll I'll stop my (laughs) rants go ahead all right i have to start recording over again (laughs) Um, in any case, we we know that it sank uh, early mornings of April 15th of 1912. We know that there were about 1,500 people who died that day. Um, and really, it was because they didn't have enough lifeboats for everybody. I mean, there were obviously other things that played into that, but they would have been able to survive if they'd have had enough lifeboats for everyone. But... Uh, 
there were a lot of safety regulations that were created after the Titanic sinking, um, including things like dealing with the, the lifeboat quantities, but also dealing with radio. And a lot of people don't know about that. They they know about the lifeboats because oh my goodness, every you know even even in your favorite movie, yeah. uh, they they really let that be known out there that there were not enough lifeboats. And, you know, remember they they thought it was unsinkable. So because they thought it was unsinkable, they didn't feel that they needed to have um, all these, ugly all these lifeboats. extra lifeboats taking up all their precious deck space and being so ugly, you know. And, Blocking the view of the passengers. Yeah, so um, 1,500 people didn't get on a lifeboat that day, and, and they, they died. Um, this and getting people there to collect the passengers who had been able to get off safely that was important because they didn't really have good communications set up to to deal with that to deal with the rescue and that the carpathia heard the 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 need and and they came they came a little too late but that's because they were so far away the the ships were actually closer they didn't even get the information didn't hear the distress signals. They didn't hear the distress signals because at the time it was not required that they have anybody listening for those. Uh, I don't know how many people knew that, but you know the telegraph operators at the time, um, they did have them on the ships, and and normally they would have one on a ship, and those one on a ship they would only be required to work a 10-hour shift. So here is 10 hours out of a 24-hour day that somebody's actually listening to those things. And it wasn't that they were listening for SOSs either. They were sending communications for these rich passengers back and forth to each other and to their friends and family and things, telling them about how great everything was. They weren't listening for distress. Right. Now, the Titanic ended up having two. They had two shipboard operators. Uh, instead of the standard one. But that's still, even if they'd separated those shifts out, they were still missing four hours a day that even the greatest, grandest ship didn't have anybody listening for any problems. So as a result of this, a lot more people died than, than definitely needed to. So they created something called the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, or the SOLAS, and that actually governs maritime safety yet today. And they changed some of these rulings. They made sure that now the numbers of lifeboats and emergency equipment uh, and the safety procedures include everybody from that ship. Uh, and they also instituted continuous radio watches. Now, that's something that uh, leads to our radio of today because um, they were now there 24 hours a day listening and listening and listening. And it was boring. I mean, could, I if there was nothing going on, nobody wanted to send a message. There wasn't any distress. I mean, it got boring. So they're sitting there and they're like, oh, what are we going to do with our time? So what they decided to do was... They started playing instruments and music to each other and telling stories and, and doing other forms of entertainment to keep all the people who are sitting there listening occupied. So if there wasn't anything major going on, they were just, you know, they playing around. And yeah, show. they had their own little fun. So as of today, uh, we actually got that golden age of radio that kind of started as a result of the Titanic sinking and not having an, a shipboard operator there listening or sending messages and receiving messages. And and then when they finally were made to have that as a result of, of the solace, uh, they're like, oh, well, this could be fun, you know. And it kind of led to the, the story time radio shows and all that that we kind of got to know and love. Well, some of us got to know and love, yeah. and we kind of lost out on that a little bit more So now, would you but... say that maybe this podcast was a result of the sinking of the Titanic? Ooh. Wow. Ooh. That's, that's, deep... that's some deep stuff. Yeah. Um, 
But I have a few other things that I kind of wanted to. I mean, that's the idea uh, behind what it actually did for us. But okay. um, there's a couple other things that I wanted to mention about it while we're here. Okay. You have time. Uh, if that's okay. You have time. All right. Uh, so, first of all, um, I mentioned Solus. And um, they've had many modifications to it as time progressed. I mean, obviously, things have changed a little bit since 1912. Do you agree? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> so, so what? Back in 1912, what they started with was Morse code, uh, and they, a lot of the Marconi um, messages that were being sent. By the way, Marconi was the the owner, the proprietor of all of the radio equipment on the ships, and they were actually in control of it, not the ships themselves. And the um, shipboard operators, actually, they reported back to Marconi. So they worked for Marconi. They worked for Marconi. They didn't work for the, the ship or for the captain. So their allegiance was to Marconi and getting the messages of those passengers back and forth rather yeah. than anything else. So that's how that really started. But um, they, they were using Morse code to send those messages. And I'm sure that if you've ever watched any of the movies or, or at least any of the historical reproductions that are done of that, you, you see them sitting there tapping, you know. Yeah, so they they did have some Morse code that was involved. And we used Morse code for a long time as far as sending that information for distress calls on the ships at sea. We still use Morse code for that today, but we don't use it necessarily at sea as much anymore. Uh, We've actually moved, um, and in, I believe it was 1988, there was a a modification to Solus, which there had been many in between 1912 and and 1988, but um, they had actually changed uh, and set up this thing called the Global Maritime Distress and Safety System, or the GMDSS. Uh, And this was an internationally agreed upon set of safety procedures on, like, what types of equipment they should be using and protocols for communication uh, so that they could have an easier time rescuing distressed ships and and aircraft and things that needed it. Um, But because Morse code... uh, was required to be sent on such a small band, uh, such a small radio band, uh, and it couldn't quite carry a ton of traffic as things have been increasingly, you know, ships travel a lot nowadays, you know, and there's a lot more going on as we do all this global jaunting, you know. Um, And sometimes we want to have communication not just with other ships near us. We want to have ships communication to shore, uh, they've actually gotten rid of the the basic use of Morse code. They can still use it, but um, they've really gotten rid of that and gone to more digital forms on the HF frequencies, which had the ability for them to um, have a wider range that they can send the communications and they can handle a lot more traffic. So that's something that I found interesting because I was like, wow, um, they got rid of Morse code. I'm like, how could they do that? That's like the international language of safety, you know? Uh, but it kind of makes sense that you want to have a, a wider range of communication. And, and with Morse, they had to be a little bit closer in, in, in that. So that's one thing that I, I found interesting. And, and that kind of goes back to this use of radio. But uh, also, um, I didn't know that the Titanic was really only at about two-thirds its capacity. I thought really? I thought that they were a, a full-booked passage. I knew that they had picked some people up along the way. Blame the movie. But I didn't, re- <laughs> I didn't realize that they, they were only two-thirds full. Uh, they actually had the ability to have... Um, many many more people on board and i'm like wow that that amazes me and if you think back they only had enough lifeboats for like 1700 people they had uh i think it was 2000 yeah well 
Yeah, at any time. But they had 2,224 souls on board that day. Um, they they were going to have twice as many people die if they were actually a full booked passage. Uh, so that's like absolutely crazy to me it is the the amount of things that you know happened as a result of of there not even being a full booked passage and that just amazes me that this particular voyage this maiden voyage they didn't somehow manage to fill that boat to capacity that's interesting to me good thing they didn't yeah Absolutely, or we would have had a lot more souls. We'll probably that have would, a podcast would have down the road about yeah. the Titanic, maybe several, you know, like we're doing Lizzie. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, by the way, our next Lizzie one's going to come out around the anniversary date. Yes, around yeah. August 4th ish. So yeah. I don't know what our podcast date like coincides to that, but somewhere yeah. close. So uh, there is more Lizzie podcasts coming, um, mm-hmm. and our next one's going to be around the anniversary date. So. So, can can I give you one more thing about the Titanic? One more, then we got to take a break. <laughs> All right. Um, I would be willing to bet that most people don't know. You're not a betting person either. No. That they didn't actually know where the Titanic was until the 1980s. That's correct. You know, and I keep bringing I that up to that people. And they're like, people "Oh no, that's not true." Oh yeah, I remember that search. You know, they were searching for mm-hmm. the. They they kind of knew where it went down, right? But they they were searching for it because the way it went down, it it actually went, you know, miles away. It didn't go straight down. That's what I'm trying to say. Right, and it's so, split into pieces, right. and so they they're a distance apart. And, of course, where they picked up the passengers, I mean, they'd been floating. So what was that, so, 75, 80 years it took them to find the yeah, actual it's, wreckage? it's crazy. It was um, 1912, and they didn't find them until 1985. 85, so 70, yeah. 73 years. Yeah, I remember that. I you know? Yeah, I remember when they found it, too, because well, I'm you like, were like, oh, three. my gosh. <laughs> but I but I remember at the time thinking, wow, they didn't know where that was. Yeah. But I was would one be of those, willing to bet that there's a lot of It was one of those mysteries back know. then. Where's the Titanic? Kind of like where's Amelia Earhart and all those other ones. Right. It, was, it was one of those mysteries, and they found it. Yeah. It was a big deal when they found it. So, yeah. so I said, we'll probably do podcasts on Titanic because you know we're putting this out there, hopefully for... You know, younger generations or those who didn't pay attention in school or, <laughs> or whatever, you know, to kind of say, hey, wait a minute. You know, this is actually what happened. So, all right, well, we need to take a break, and we all will right. be back uh, shortly. With, okay. we got to cram three more in in the second half. Oh, so. we can do it. Yeah, we can do it. All right, <laughs> all right, so we will be back here in a little bit. Stay tuned. calendars close your doors and turn off all the lights as twice a month bte radio brings you a new episode of the haunted spotlight sean and marianne donnelly of dark shadow ghost tours dig deep into the archives of the panic d database and take you inside a different location with each new episode learn the rich history and hear the paranormal claims of some of the most infamous and unsuspecting locations from around the country Ever wonder what roams the property or lurks behind those closed doors? Curious about the true history of that creepy house that sits down the street? Want to know what evidence a paranormal investigation group may have captured? Then find out every other Sunday and tune in to BTE Radio for another chilling episode of The Haunted Spotlight, if you dare. Okay, and we are back. We're talking about five things in history that changed the world. And uh, we just finished talking about the Titanic and how we got our current radio. Mm-hmm. 
basically from the sinking of the Titanic, which is kind of kind cool, of cool how you tie all that together like mm-hmm. that. Um, all right, so the next thing we're going to talk about is a gentleman named Admiral Matthew Perry. You ever heard of him? Nope. Nope? <laughs> no, I've I had, heard of him before. I, had, I mean, I had heard that of the name, but I had no idea what he did. Okay. I could say that. Well, let's... Actually, this guy was, uh, he was big in the Navy, okay, Admiral, of course, (laughs) Uh, and I'll talk about some of his, you know, things that he did with the Navy and and how popular he was and things like that, but he actually was responsible with Japan opening up trade with the world, okay, Um, so... In 1854, prior to that, uh, the Japanese Empire was considered, what is it, isolationism, okay? So they pretty much stayed to themselves, didn't trade with others, things like that. They didn't play well with others? They didn't play well with others, okay. Oh, so sad. So Admiral uh, Perry, he visited Japan several times, and he basically talked them into opening up foreign trade, okay? Okay. Which basically led to the atomic bomb. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I'm going to go I over the see that right now. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so we had the Titanic that gave us the radio today, the Crimean War, troubles that we have in the Middle East. Okay, so Admiral Perry, atomic bomb. Ready? Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's, <coughs> let's go. All right. So, um, like I said, he... he uh, basically talked them into open up foreign trade. Japan realized they didn't have enough uh, natural resources, so they began, began to spread their empire, basically, so they could get more uh, natural resources so that they could compete in the industrial world and, and have trade. So they invade Korea, okay? Okay. Which was a, uh, uh, basically a, a, a state of China. Okay, um, and then Japan sided with the Allies during World War One, and during the war they continued to expand their territories um, during the war and following the war. So basically, they went from being a closed net country, okay, to Admiral Perry, tell, you know, talking into growing. All right, so okay. In 1931, um, Japan invaded Manchuria, outraging Western nations. Uh oh. Uh, yeah, this is like the beginning of the nasty stuff. In response to that, Japan withdrew from the League of Nations in 1933. They're like, okay, we're we're not going to play with you anymore. All right. In 1937, Japan went on to attack China and French Indonesia in 1940. This led to the United States imposing an oil embargo on Japan. Now, of course, we know what happened shortly after that, uh, and that was Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Okay? Mm-hmm. Big day in infamy. That's right. And then we know what happened after Pearl Harbor. United States retaliated. Of course we did. Bombing Japan, basically almost obliviating the empire. All right. Right. This all stems back to Admiral Perry. Okay. Now, uh, Admiral Perry, he was a commodore in the United States Navy. Uh, He commanded a number of ships. He served several wars, including the Mexican-American War and the War of 1912. He was actually concerned with the uh, education of naval officers, so he developed an apprentice program that later turned into the curriculum that the U.S. Navy uses at the U.S. Naval Academy. Hmm. Yeah. Um, he was also known as the father of the steam navy. So when the steam, steam engines ships. came about, um, he uh, got behind it big time and... Uh, our Navy. And I find it ironic that 
Japan bombed our navy in Pearl Harbor. There's there's uh, there's other ironies here that later that we're going to talk about, but well, not too far later here in a minute. But he also helped uh, secure the Florida Keys for the United States. Oh, okay. So we have all those nice little yeah, islands, so and he was very uh, very well known military man. Okay. I don't think they kind of put two and two together back then. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but of course while. we know that led to, you know, Pearl Harbor, the war and all of that, the dropping of the bomb and the years, you know, that's how we go from Admiral Perry gotcha. to the atomic bomb. Okay. okay. But um, this is one thing that I found interesting and then we'll move on to the next one. During the um, surrender of Japan to the United States, um, there was a flag that was brought from a museum in Annapolis to um, to, to Japan, sort of thing, and it was Admiral Perry's flag. And this was under recommendation of Douglas MacArthur, who was a descendant of Perry's. Hmm. Okay, and that flag was hung up on the wall behind. You know, you can see some pictures, and maybe I'll do a blog post about this too. You can see Admiral Perry's flag hanging on the wall while they're signing the uh, surrender. Very Japan cool. surrender. So, so kind of full circle. Yeah. Yeah. Made full circle. So that's that one. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of, I think the most interesting thing is that it, it went full circle where yeah. he, he started it and his flag ends it. Now, when well, I was putting this together, it. I was looking real quick, but I could, I could pretty much, if, you know, we're from northeast Ohio. You haven't been to Putin Bay. I've no. been there a couple mm-hmm. times. There's actually a monument up there, and I think it's for Admiral Perry, Perry's monument on Putin Bay. It has something to do with the War of 1812 and, and things like that. So he's got monuments all over the country, too. <clears throat> so anyways, let's move on to the next one. You want to talk about this one, the... Uh, that conference sure uh the Bretton woods conference uh there's a little town called Bretton woods where they actually had this big conference and it's an important conference and i don't know if many people know that this thing even existed um it was it used to be known as the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. Uh, it was actually a gathering of 730 delegates from all 44 of the Allied Nations back in 1944. And it was held in a hotel called the Mount Washington Hotel in none other than Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, here in the United States. So that's why they call it, they they call it the Bretton Woods Conference now because that's literally where it was held. Uh, but the idea was to regulate international monetary financial order after the conclusion of World War II. So remember, lots of places were in shambles and and they needed some assistance and things. So um, the conference was held in July. Uh, it was originally scheduled to be from July first to July nineteenth. But then along the way, they decided it needed to be extended a little bit more. And it ended up being from July 1st to July 22nd. Um, wow, 22-day conference? Yeah, that Jeez. was an immensely long conference. And, and everybody had the ability to have a person uh, at every single session. Um, all the countries of the world were, were suggested to have somebody at each session and things like that. Um, but... Uh, this this really led to a lot of changes in the international banking industry uh, because agreements were signed there uh, and later ratified uh, by members of different governments from all over the world, uh, and it established something called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, or the IBRD. And this is the the association that offers loans to middle-income developing countries. And the bank actually gave its very first loan to France in 1947 to finance its infrastructural projects after the war. Well, and this do you is know- kind of cool. I always wondered how these countries 
like rebuild. Yeah. I mean, you see pictures of England with the bombings and mm-hmm. France and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So basically, this is how the country Yeah, is. basically all of the... Um, it started at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. It did. It <laughs> Yeah. Um, not to not Brent Woods, New Hampshire. You know, yeah, I don't want to get started on that. Our other shows, I get. <laughs> there's certain places in this country I can't go to without having a target on my back. But stop it. Um, no, but it 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 really starts the ability for us to allow reform to happen and rebuilding after after these major conflicts. Uh, but the very first loan, as I said, was to France. And do you know how much it was for? Uh, $250 million. $250 million. And that's back in 1944. So if you look at, like, the, the you know, uh, inflation and things like that, I mean, that that gets into the billions uh, in today's, today's monetary value. So in any case, uh, that's how they kind of started that. Uh, it also created something called the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF. And this is where all currencies were required to be convertible for trade. And they created exchange rates, and they kind of set that up so that no nation would really be more favored over another. So the exchange rates were kind of you know, set into place so nobody's money was worth, you know, a lot more. It actually started with 29 member countries, and now today it has 189 member countries. And they all contribute funds through a pool system, uh, which they have a quota, and each of the countries kind of experiencing the balance of payment problems, uh, they can borrow money. And kind of set things up so it doesn't have to be just in a wartime now. You can, if you have problems, you can actually borrow money from the IMF and the International Banking, you know, IBRD. And they can, you know, obtain funds to fix problems that they have. And and it's kind of like our banking system here in, in the U.S., you know, where we can take out a loan. Um, they get to take out a loan. But what I find interesting is we had the conference here in New Hampshire, and then both of the things that we created out of that conference, they're both headquartered here in Washington, D.C. now. Uh, so the, um, the IMF and the IBRD, they're both headquartered right here in Washington, D.C. now. Even though they're international. Even though they are international, um, they are headquartered right here. And and the idea was um, that we were, the United States, we were um, kind of the, the boomingest at the time. So we were really including, uh, our quota was a lot more than other countries. So we had a little bit more influence then. And because we were paying a lot. So uh, I think that's kind of what kind of led to our, the headquarters being here in the U.S. Now, um, something else that's kind of interesting to me about this is that though they were working on this um, in you know July, they didn't actually have the agreements all come into play until December um, and then they had a, a meeting the next March um, but that why didn't it come into play until that point because even though they all kind of said yeah we're going to do this the countries actually they those representatives had to go back to their countries and they had to ratify this uh-huh. and so they needed make um, sure that the country said yeah go ahead right so they yeah. needed 80 percent um of the capital that their quota was going to be to be in place and they needed to be signed and ratified and everything. And so this, this like threshold that they had created for themselves, uh, it, it wasn't sort of in place until December, the very end of December, uh, just before Christmas or just after Christmas, I'm sorry. Uh, but then when they actually went to do this, and they had their first meeting. They, they were going to set up meetings now. Uh, they had their first meeting in the U.S. again. Uh, this time it was in Savannah, Georgia. And that was um, March 8th to 18th of 46. 
And one country that was at the original meetings signed and said, yeah, we're going to participate, that ended up not actually ratifying it was the USSR. Really? And uh, so they had actually come. They had been at the Bretton Woods, you know, meeting. They had signed off on the act, but they never ended up ratifying it. And they never joined the IMF or the IBRD ever. Although when the USSR sort of broke up and they kind of changed hands and names and became the Russian Federation, um, they did end up joining in 1992 as the Russian Federation. But they never joined as the USSR, and they were one of the original uh, people who signed off on the act. But they never ended up ratifying it, and so the USSR never actually became part of it. But uh, this this whole thing leads to the world banking system that we have today and basically... Started in New Hampshire. What's it say? Trace back to a meeting in backwaters of rural New Hampshire. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that is interesting. I, 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 I find it real before, interesting, too. So. I mean, I've not even heard of that little town in New Hampshire. Well, but I've we heard might of the World to. Banking System and all that other stuff. I've heard of that, too. And, and we've heard of the location where this actually happened, um, where, where it all went down. You know, that's still a hotel that exists today uh it's actually just bought again uh this What's past year um it was the uh it, it's now changed it's now owned by the omni corporation um so like washington state or something like that no no it, it was the uh Mount washington hotel Mount washington but hotel, now it's right. known as the omni Mount Washington Hotel. Um, so it, it sort of changed its name location. a little bit. But it is, yeah. It's one of those haunted locations. Oh, we so have to talk about that. We might have to visit the new, the new Mount. Oh, you're Mount. talking about a road trip? Yeah. Road trip to yeah, New Hampshire. Yeah, might have to. Go find, you know, the actual location. Maybe they have some, like, signatures or something oh, in yeah, the hotel cool. books for... You know, who stayed there and signed this thing. I don't know. I think it'd be cool. All right. So is that it for that one? Yeah. International Banking World Bank System started right here in New Hampshire. All right. Okay. So let's move on to the next one. And that is, I guess I'm doing this one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll do it together. Okay. okay. So this one we're talking about the Spanish flu. Mm. Yeah. Everybody knows about the Spanish flu. They have all heard of the Spanish flu. Well, and, there's a reason. <laughs> and and a lot of the um, epidemics that we've been predicting the last couple years, to they've all been kind of referring back, back to, to the, the Spanish, Spanish flu. flu. So a yeah. lot of people, even today, still know about they've the heard Spanish that flu. Yeah. Heard. Okay. So we're talking in 1918 mm-hmm. is where this hit. There was two waves of the Spanish flu in 1918, okay? It was mm-hmm. the same year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the last wave hit, like, November, December. So it was, like, towards the end of the year. All right, so this was a world epidemic. I mean, it wasn't just one particular place. But in 1918, the world was celebrating the end of World War One. Unfortunately, Spanish flu hit at the same time, Okay. Now, in just two short years, the virus killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. And in some communities, it wiped out almost 90% of the population. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah, it was, a, it was a big killer. It was really, really bad. It is said that the Spanish flu killed more in 25 weeks. Is that what I'm saying? Than AIDS has in 25 years, and more in a single year than the bubonic plague, the bubonic plague killed in a century. So oh, the bubonic plague—that's another one. Oh yeah, yeah. Ring around the rosy. Yeah. Um, so this was a Different nasty podcast. flu. Yeah, another podcast. <laughs> Spiral alert. Okay, but anyways, um, this outbreak uh, gave. 
you know, we're doing like what happened and what the outcome was. Mm-hmm. This outcome basically created making money on medicine. Okay. Okay, because it was so vast. There was a couple things that that contributed to that besides just the the, the outbreak, okay? Um so how did it start? In reality, they don't know where it started. Some say in China, some say in Europe. And it's called the Spanish flu, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, some even say in Kansas. Not with Auntie M. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, but they really don't know where it began. And the reason why is how it was spread. Okay. It was spread. Now, nowadays you hear, you know, hey, the flu's coming around, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Because it's basically like you touch something where that flu is, and you rub it on your face or whatever, and that's how you get Get it in your mouth because everybody touches their face and mouth. Um, But this spread by people coughing and sneezing. When they would cough and sneeze, thousands of virus particles mm -hmm. would go out into the air. Still the same kind of thing that we do But this was bad. But this was, yeah, this was a bad one. And the problem with it was most flu epidemics affect children and the elderly. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Those with weaker immune systems. Mm-hmm. The Spanish flu affected people with strong immune systems. And what it did was, is when they got the flu, it made their immune system just go out of whack. Crazy, fighting it. And it made it worse to eventually it killed them. Okay. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, that's pretty bad. You know, pretty bad bug right there. Um so, like I said, they really didn't know where it started, but here's the reason why they think it was in Kansas, okay? Because this is how quickly it spread. There was a report of a soldier on a military base in Kansas. One soldier. Okay. Uh, he went to the infirmary. infirmary, had the flu, whatever. In a matter of a week, there were 535 other soldiers in the infirmary with the same symptoms. Wow. So he probably had it, was walking around sneezing, coughing, whatever. Right. Other people picked it up, okay? Uh, Like I said, there was two waves that happened. The second one was the deadliest that took out most people. Um, Okay, I talked about that. Here's another thing that kind of contributed to the fatality rate, all right? In 1918, around that time, maybe 17, 19, 19, bear the aspirin people the aspirin people their patent ran out okay okay so other companies jumped on it and started making aspirin Ooh. okay that's why you have other companies that make aspirin besides bear yeah because their patent on that formula ran out and they didn't re-up it okay so uh you have doctors that don't know how to treat this thing Mm-hmm. It's 1918. Medicine still in its infancy, basically. Um, they're prescribing aspirin. Look at these dosages: eight to 31.5 grams of aspirin per patient per day. That's grams, not milligrams. Grams. That's that's a that's a lot. Like when when what did you tell me? Two point five. Two point five grams is the mass of a U.S. penny. That's a lot of aspirin. So you're you're looking, at, you're looking at like fifteen pennies yeah. worth of aspirin per a day. day. That, that is that's a lot. Which contributed to and now this report came out like in 2012, I think. You know, don't quote me on the dates, but it was a, a, a doctor who or somebody who was writing a doctorate paper that went back and looked at this and like they didn't know the effects of aspirin poisoning. Which could have led to the high so fatality rate. So some of rate. these people might not have actually died from the Spanish flu, but they from died from the aspirin. the aspirin poisoning that they were using to treat it. And you know what? That's that's something that's unfortunate. Like a lot of things, especially when we come out with a new procedure uh, or a new medication or whatever, people die because we don't necessarily know. Haven't had time to test it. Yeah, we don't know any better. We don't know how to use it properly. Things like that and. This just kind of goes to show you, wow. Yeah. We we may have had a lower epidemic rate than 
that we do. Now, here's the thing that's even scarier, all right? How did it die out? Now, it already wiped out 50 to 100 million people on the planet, okay? Some think that the the way it started, they don't know how it started, where it came from. Some think, and the, and the most popular thing was, it started as a bird flu. Sound familiar? Uh-huh. Avian okay. bird flu. And it got into pigs. Mm-hmm. I can imagine, you know, birds flying over, doing their business into um, the... Piggies Where the pigs it. eat, pigs eat, and humans eat pigs. Uh-huh. Okay, so mm-hmm. they think that's how it, it started okay. in humans. Okay. Okay, but this affected royal areas like... Pacific Islands and things like that. That's why I say they wiped out like almost nations, you know, communities. Um, but it died out as quickly as it started. A lot of people think that doctors finally figured out how to treat it. But in reality, when the second wave came, mm-hmm. even though it was the deadliest, mm-hmm. it kind of got to its maximum, the, the virus. And what I read was most flu viruses get to their maximum where they're they're causing the damage and then they mutate and start to die out and eventually they just as they mutate over and over they they go away okay that's what they think happened was the third wave was basically so weak that it just died out it didn't you know, so it mutated really to only, a point where it just went away as fast as it came. So we really only see two waves because a third wave may have started, but it just... Right. Gotcha. Right. So, Interesting. Either that or you said it was uh, affecting the healthy people. So all yeah. the healthy people were dead and it wasn't affecting the weak. It could be because that if you be think about that, if affected what the symptoms were, okay, it was the flu, but your immune system... And this is why I kind of like don't get a flu shot, you know, because your body needs to build up those natural tolerances. Your immune system has to build up to fight it. So if you go get a flu shot, they're introducing that flu in your body so that you build up that immune system to fight it when it comes is basically what they're doing. Some people get really sick over that. Okay. Uh, okay. But that's just my opinion. Probably wrong, Miss Scientist. But anyways... um, these people had healthy immune systems. When that flu hit, it overreacted and it tried to fight it and 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 fight it. And what killed them was the overreaction of the immune system. Whereas in AIDS, it's a defensi- defense- deficiency. deficiency. Okay, mm-hmm. but the people who, children and the elderly who have a weaker immune system, probably build up a tolerance. They fought it, and they didn't die from it. They recovered from it. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Now tell me I'm wrong, Miss Scientist. No, I, I like it. Um, but I was just going to add to your flu shot thing, which, you know, the flu shot that you get every year if you get it, it's not this year's strain. It's actually last year's strain. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's so, actually the flu strain though, it that is. they're putting in your yes. body, just so people know that. Yes. It's but not it's like last a medicine. Year's. To yeah. fight it. Mm-hmm. That's why I really I'm holding yeah. off getting a flu shot until I'm yeah, until too old yeah. to have my immune system. Though. Yeah, and I don't get it either because of the fact that it's last year's strain. So who yeah, cares? What's the, point? what's the point? Yeah. I've known people, even relatives, that got really, really sick from getting it because mm-hmm. their immune system. And I'm and I'm a, I'm a science person. I'm not against you know vaccinations and things like that. I just don't see the point in it when it's not the current strain but anybody has the right to uh disagree with me but that's my that's my point on that one uh so you have all these people that are having the flu they're dying there's not a lot of people in some towns even left uh they're overdosing them with aspirin that's right (laughs) okay yeah nice all right, so... So the massive influx of patients led to a boom in the medical field of people uh, increasing the pay of doctors because there was a shortage of doctors to treat, so the more, more hours doctors were game. coming out and going into the profession. Um, people were paying more for medicine to try to get recovered, you know, that kind of thing. So the Spanish flu sparked that off, and we're still seeing that trend today. If you think about it, how much does it actually cost to go to the doctor? It's not cheap. 
mm-hmm. you know, yeah, because there's not enough doctors and those pills enough. that cost you know three hundred dollars a pill. Yeah. Or, well, half you know. of the, I mean, half the three fourths of that is is. Yeah, I mean, it does take a lot of money to to put into the research to create these medications. I'm not going to deny them that, but you, you know, know, once I'm you make on, a bunch I'm on of cold them. medicine now, do we really want to get an argument? Most <laughs> these labs are set up through grant money to begin with, so you know. No. <coughs> I don't know, right, but anyways. definitely the Spanish flu sets in a little bit more in our medical field as well, just yeah. like the Crimean War at the beginning. Exactly. We had Florence Nightingale with the Crimean War, and we're ending with the uh, Spanish flu and See, more I medication. Did, that on did you? No, okay. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got world banking. We have the atomic age. We have uh, obviously the Crimean the, War. We Crimean have the Titanic with you know, our lots. current radio. All these things triggered uh, a change Some in major the way changes. we have life right now Mm -hmm. so very interesting uh podcast we hope you guys like it if you did you know what drop us a comment we'd love to hear from you and here's how you could do that you just go to our blog site which is untoldhistoryrevealed.blogspot.com and on there's a little form that you can fill out and it'll send marianne and i an email you know we haven't got one yet this is our eighth episode almost 900 downloads of our podcast we'd love to hear from you let us know your opinions tell us if we're wrong give us a topic to talk about yeah absolutely why not um but that ends this episode so till next time i'm sean and i'm marianne thanks for listening Listening to Untold History 